You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome, all you wiretappers out there back here in the studio of Gangland Wire. I have a really interesting story today. Uh, I stumbled across a book, or maybe somebody got hold of me. Anyhow, I found out a book about John Sonny Francese, and I always was curious about him. I did a small show on him when he died. I believe he was the oldest living gangster that was in penitentiary and then died, got out and died at like 103. Uh, and, and he's just an interesting guy. You know, we all know that Michael Francese, uh, his son is... Uh, has a, a really uh, a, a popular YouTube show and, and he's got his fingers in all kinds of businesses. He had a big fight with Sammy the Bull Gravano, if you want to believe that <laughs> big fight. <laughs> you know what I always thought? What if these mob guys, there's so many mob guys with podcasts and, and YouTube channels. What if one of them like gets mad at the other and, and he puts a hit out on it because he thinks the guy is moving in on his business or something else? I mean... Uh, <laughs> Does that be light imitating art, right? Sandra <laughs> Petty, welcome. She is the author of The Last Old Time Mafia Bosses. Oh, The Last of the Sunny. Old Time Mafia Bosses, Sunny. John Sonny Francese. Sonny is the actual title, and you can see it over right. her shoulder there. And folks, here, here is, you're on YouTube, there's, <laughs> there it is. So uh, anyhow, welcome, Sandra. And, and thank you. And, and by the way, if you look at the book, it's by S.J. Petty. Not Sandra Petty, because my editor has never edited a mob book by a woman, oh. and he wasn't sure it would sell. Oh, interesting. You know, I wonder, yeah. when I saw that SJ, I'm thinking back to the old authors, I can't even think of them, back in the 1800s, where they they would have a, a name that didn't indicate they were a woman. I can't think of their right. names now. Yeah, like, there are, there are a lot of them. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm one of them now. You're one so. of them now. And this is 2022? <laughs> it is. It is indeed. You know, I, I and actually, I, and I understand you are the second woman that I've ever interviewed. And, and I've interviewed a lot of mob authors. Of course, a lot of them are, are former agents, but I didn't have one uh, former uh, FBI agent who, uh, who was female or is female uh, who worked the case. And, and uh, uh, I think, oh, I had one of my, my friends in the police department who worked undercover narcotics for a long time. So I interviewed her, but in that author business <laughs> with mob books, only Debbie Applegate, who wrote the, the story of Polly Adler, who was a, a madam in the, uh, what, the 1930s and 40s and knew a lot of mob guys. So welcome, Sandra. It's good to Thank have you. you. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, John Sonny Francese, I guess uh, I remember hearing about him when I was working intelligence and, and he had some connection to some credit card scam business that had some outline business in, in suburban Kansas city. And I thought, wow, that sounds like a pretty cool guy. <laughs> and, and, you know, this Bob guys, we were, we'd never see him in Kansas city, but we, I remember we went out to this business and wrote down some license numbers and went in the building to see if it was actually there. You know, and I don't remember anything more about it, but he just, you know, you, you talk about, uh, he just got a cool name, <laughs> you know, kind of like <laughs> Sammy the bull, you know, <laughs> John Gotti, you know, <laughs> Well, Sonny was one of, you know, one of the things that set Sonny apart was that he was a real entrepreneur. He was a businessman. 
And he had his tentacles in everything, credit cards, banks, liquor distributors, popular music. Uh, he had his own the theatrical agency. Sonny was everywhere. And in the 60s, the mafia was at its peak. Yeah, especially there in New York City. Right. I, I've been watching this thing. Uh, uh, I just finally got around to seeing it about the uh, the deuce. It's called the deuce and, and how the mob was just totally controlled that all the porn and, and bar scene and everything in, in New York City. And, and, and as I mentioned, I, as I read through your book, it really what really struck me was about the music business, uh, that he had his fingers in the music business. Now, I have this podcast I listen to called uh, The History of Rock and Roll in 500 Songs. By the way, if you are interested in popular music, this is a heck of a good podcast. It's uh, not a commercial podcast. It's a guy like me that does all of his own research and and uh, he's able to snag little snippets of songs under the uh, fair use uh, doctrine why he's able to use little snippets of the songs. But anyhow, he was talking about the Peppermint Lounge and how that was a mob run operation. And and uh, Joy, Deer, Joy D and the Starlighters popularized the twist after uh, Chubby Checker did. And, and uh, this guy that I know is in your book, Morris Levy, jumped onto that and signed this guy to his, his roulette records. It was roulette records, and, right? And and really popularized the twist nationwide. So there was a mob influence in in this huge dance craze and in the change of rock and roll. And, and Sonny Francese was all over that. So let's talk a little bit about. I, I think maybe an overview from you about his place in what family and everything in, in the mob. And then let's go into to his connections in the music business. How about that, Sandra? Well, that sounds fine. Sonny was born in Naples and his family came to New York in the 1920s as in one of these big immigration surges. And he was inducted into the mafia at the age of 14. And mm. of course, to be inducted, you had to kill yeah. someone. Oh, really? And then he was a soldier in the what was then known as the Profaci family. But he was a very smart kid. He got kicked out of school at 15 because he got into a fight with a kid over a stolen lighter and uh, beat, the pulp, beat him to a pulp. So he then started running bookmaking operations for the mafia. And by the 18, he was, he was running the biggest uh, gambling operation in the city. He then moved on to other businesses. He was close to Albert Anastasia, Vita Genovese. They all were impressed by this up-and-comer, and he worked his way up through the ranks, he was, and he was a very loyal soldier. How did I come to talk to him? He was 100 years old when he was released from prison, and he, he had at one point been one of the wealthiest mobsters in the country. He would take his family for vacations on the Concord. He would have cool wow. in the gang over at his house. <laughs> he, he socialized with Dion Carroll, Diane Carroll, Dion Warwick. He was, he was huge. And when I met him at age 101, he was in a nursing home with one kidney, a pacemaker, one eye, a broken hip in a wheelchair but still full of zest for life. He was an amazing guy. And he started to tell his story, but he never, ever once violated Omerta. Uh -huh. At one time I said to him, I said, Sonny, did FBI agents try to get you to violate Omerta? He goes, what's that? What are you talking about? <laughs> you got to like that. <laughs> very cagey guy. Very yeah. cagey. 
Yeah, and, and you know they did. I, I, every mob guy I ever knew, personally, they, they'll visit you in prison periodically and say, hey, how's it going? You know, just here's my car, just in case. <laughs> and that's exactly what they did. And he said they used to come to him in prison all the time. And he'd say, nope, not interested. Yeah, yeah. But that's what made Sonny so revered on the street is he never rolled. He was sentenced yeah. to prison for 50 years for a yeah. bank robbery conspiracy he said he wasn't guilty of. And mm. to his dying days, he said, I didn't do it. Yeah. And he and he told the judge when he was sentenced in 1967, he said, you watch, I'll do the whole bid. Mm. And he came up. Yeah. And and uh, and he was he, that for him was winning. You know, outli- outliving all his antagonists, the prosecutors, <laughs> the judge, the yeah. cops. He, he thought he was winning. <laughs> and in my last interview, which was right before his 103rd birthday, he was trying to tell me he was 104. I said, Sonny, <laughs> you're really 103, but it's OK. And he was very sharp. Uh, he yeah. was a very disciplined guy, never drank, never smoked. Uh, never got involved in any kind of drugs. Uh, he was very, and you know, you know how in the movies you see these luncheons that mobsters have wine fueled yeah. lunches yeah, with yeah. pasta and all that. You know, he would have a date nut bread sandwich for uh, lunch and he uh, would just eat on the run. He was a real uh, focused businessman. Well, hence the, the, maybe the secret of longevity. My mother lived to be about 104 and she, she lived, she kind of ate like that herself and was, was, you know, just thin as a rail her whole life. So uh, we all could take a lesson from that. Couldn't we? Well, it's also has something to do with his genes. I'm sure, but he <laughs> yeah. was very proud of it. Yeah. And he never, he never drank uh, when he joined the army, he had to give up sugar in his coffee. And I said, so Sonny, when was the last time you had sugar? He said, 1942. Wow. Man. <laughs> <laughs> but he was very, he loved, the other thing that made Sonny stand apart was he loved the nightlife. He loved the glamour. Uh, and whenever mobsters do perp walks, if you look at the old photos, they're all covering their faces. You know, yeah. you look at Carmine Persco, he's got a coat over his face. Sonny yeah. never covered his face. Uh, he would stop, he would turn his head and he would smile. And it was always had a cashmere overcoat, yeah, cuff lengths, French cuffs, beautifully dressed. Yeah. He looked good and he knew it. Oh, and he parlayed that. He was very popular at the Copacabana, which, of course, I, I'm sure your listeners know that Frank Costello was a silent partner in the Copacabana. Right. I knew there was and, a big mob connection to it. I, and I, I have some vague memory. I'm really going into that. So that's interesting. But I knew mobsters all felt comfortable at the Copa. Oh, yes, they absolutely did. And I don't know if you uh, remember Gianni Russo, who played Carlo in The Godfather. Yeah. He used to be a runner, I think, for Costello. So he was at the Copacabana all the time. And he uh, remembered seeing Sonny there. But of course, he was too low to approach Sonny. So he never did. Uh, interesting. But uh, it was and celebrities would go there to meet mobsters. Yeah. It yeah. was a, it was really a, a melting pot. And it was the kind of place the guy who ran it was Jules Podell. He wasn't on the license because he had a, a felony record, but he was he was a stickler for detail. And so, for example, he would not let unescorted women come to the Copacabana. <laughs> and Sonny's wife, Tina, who was beautiful and elegant and always beautifully dressed, she would go to the club because Sonny would always go in the back door through the kitchen. S- Tina would go separately. And because she was Tina Francaise, the doorman 
would walk her straight to Sonny's table. <laughs> and this, the doorman told me, I mean, this is, this is not apocryphal. This is straight right. from the, the uh, Copacabana doorman. Primary source. <laughs> we like those primary yeah. sources. Yeah. We? There are a lot of primary sources in this one. So, <laughs> yeah, so and he loved it. And I, I said to him at one point, I said, Sonny, where did you sit when you went to the Copa? And he looked at me and he said, wherever I wanted. <laughs> and, you know, he wasn't bragging. He was just yeah. stating the facts. Yeah. And if the club was full, they would put a, a table on the stage. Huh. And that, of course, Sonny knew Frank Sinatra. He was very close to Frank Sinatra. He, had, he knew Frank Sinatra when he was a young and up and coming singer. He had helped him out in a bar fight at the Rustic Lodge in, in upstate New York. And of course, as Sinatra got to be bigger, he expected people to defer to him. And Sonny, I, I said to Sonny, I said, so did you know Frank Sinatra? And he said, you asked the question the wrong way. You ah. should have asked, did Frank Sinatra know Sonny Francais? <laughs> and he said that, he said one night, he was walking through the club and Sinatra was yelling, Sonny, Sonny. He was behind him. Yeah. And Sonny pretended he didn't hear him <laughs> just to put him in his place. That's a good he story. also described, he also described, uh, remember Ava Gardner with oh, yeah. whom Frank Sinatra was hopelessly in love. Yeah. She used to come to the Copa to watch him perform. And one night he started talking with her, started flirting, and they had a little makeout session in a room behind the bar. <laughs> they didn't go to bed. And, and she was one of the few women Sonny did not claim to bed. But yeah. he was very proud of his little uh, makeout session, with her, which he described in detail. So. Even at 103. Huh? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. And at, at one point, when uh, the videographer I was with got up and left the table, he turned to me and he said, say, you married? I said, yes, honey, I'm married. He goes, oh, too bad. I'd take you out to lunch when I get out of here. You know, Sandra, that was a question I was going to ask. Now, now did he flirt with you? Being oh, an attractive woman? Oh, absolutely. yeah. <laughs> Bear in mind, he was in a wheelchair and needed help going to the bathroom. <laughs> But Sonny was Sonny. <laughs> it really. So, yeah. yeah. He, he, he just, he loved life and he was yeah. an unabashed bad guy. <laughs> he owned a lot of clubs and he said, but never in my name. And I said, yeah. well, why is that? And he said, because I was a bad guy. <laughs> so he, uh, he also met Jane Mansfield at the Copacabana and describes a very torrid affair with Jane Mansfield. Really? Yes. Uh, but it, it, it seemed to have settled down because then he met Marilyn Monroe, Yeah. but he met her at the stork club and they, he said, had an affair and that led to the, the only time, and I interviewed Sonny six times, the only time he ever expressed any remorse mm. was remember the night of the democratic convention where Marilyn Monroe came out and sang happy birthday to Jack Kennedy in oh, this yeah. shimmery gown that yeah. was skin tight. Yeah. Mr. President. Well, <laughs> yes. Well, Sonny and Joe DiMaggio were there on the main floor. And DiMaggio, by then, Monroe and DiMaggio were apart, but DiMaggio was chasing Sonny around the floor, Sonny believed, to confront him about the affair. Yeah. And Sonny, could, Sonny, who wasn't afraid of anyone, he couldn't face him because DiMaggio was his childhood hero. 
Yeah. He couldn't talk to him. <laughs> Interesting. Hey, yeah. He is a human being. <laughs> I always like it when we show the human side of these, uh, these mythical mobsters to, to find the human side of them. That's a great yeah. one. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Now you mentioned that, and uh, it was in your book about, he had a, a relationship with Bobby Darren, who was, you know, he, he was huge at the time. He didn't, didn't live out his life with, but Bobby Darren, and did he manage him or was they just friends? Well, no, no. Bobby Darren, as you pointed out, the music industry, the, the mafia was huge in the music industry in yeah. the sixties and roulette records run by Mo Levy was affiliated with the Genovese family. And so Darren initially was with the Genovese family. Mo Levy gave Darren to Sonny. Ah, interesting. And and that meant that Darren had to presumably give him make payments to him, and Sonny would help his career. And Sonny, what he did act as a manager, he would get people into clubs. And can you imagine if Sonny Francais said, "I want you to put my singer on your stage," are you going to say no? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so he was, and he really liked Darren. He he loved Bobby Darren. Um, at one point, he I, I he said to me the, in the first interview, he said he realized I think that I could be helpful to him, and he said, "What's your name? Is it Samantha?" And I said, "No, Sandra, like Sandra D." And he <laughs> said, "Oh, Sandra D, lovely girl, but she couldn't sing." <laughs> and um so he really liked Darren and Sandra D and he he Sonny was a real music fan he loved talent uh-huh. but he also understood that talent could make him money but he he was a genuine music fan and he, in his view Darren was a better singer than Frank Sinatra <laughs> and he, the two of them hated each other and Sinatra particularly hated Darren because he knew he was a threat because Darren could hit notes that uh-huh. Sinatra couldn't. Uh-huh. And that hard. was Sonny. That was Sonny's observation. I have to go back and listen to Beyond the Sea again one more time. <laughs> Think about that. <laughs> or Max the Knife. Max the Knife, you know. yeah. He had a lot yeah. of good ones. Now, uh, Sandra, tell us a little bit more about Mo Levy or Morris Levy. Uh, I, well, Morris, I, I, I looked him up a little bit, but I, I can't remember exactly what it was. He was connected to the Genovese. I, I remember that. Yes, he was. He was a, a street kid who grew up and he, he was connected with the Genovese family. A big guy. He had hands like catcher mitts, according to Tommy James. Do you remember Tommy James and the Shondells? Yeah, yeah. I knew uh, he was. Left- He's got a book, something about yes. the mob and the music business. So right. Well, I interviewed Tommy about this. And and so he roulette signed Tommy James and the Shondells. But he, Levy was a big gambler, big, big gambler. And he was married, I think, four times. And he liked to buy his wives, you know, horses and houses. So he spent the money as soon as it came in. Yeah. And so he was a tough businessman to deal with, but he had a good ear for talent. And one day, uh, in fact, Sonny told me this story. Uh, Do you remember the song Leader of the Laundromat? No, I'm sorry. Leader of the Pack. Leader of the Pack, pack. yeah. Right, right. Well, a novelty group. In the 60s, novelty groups were huge. And there was a novelty group called The Detergents. And the (laughs) songwriter, Paul Vance, who also wrote Catch a Falling Star, he wrote as he wrote a parody of leader of the laundromat called a leader of the pack called leader of the laundromat. (laughs) And it's hilarious. If you listen to it online, it's just hilarious. It sold 900,000 copies. And 
Vance understandably wanted his royalties. The, the detergents who are younger teenage singers, they knew enough to just say, uh, whatever you say, Morris. But Vance challenged him. Levy, at that point, he was, he was down to his last $10,000. He needed the money. And he told them the records all came back. So they didn't make any money. And Vance, Vance got mad and he slugged him. And Sonny was there with his guys and Sonny yelled, the window, the window, you dumb bastard. And they hung him out the window. And they said, you give Morris what he wants. (laughs) And Vance said, you got it. So he did. And they pulled roulette out of insolvency. And after that, Paul Vance and Sonny Francis became fast friends because, and his Sonny's compatriots said, why are you being good to this guy? He said, you know who that guy is? He's won 29 gold records. Yeah. He can make (laughs) us money. And Vance liked Sonny because Sonny was always straight with him. He never lied to him. And that's one of the things that you hear everyone who did business with Sonny. They said he was a straight shooter. Mm -hmm. You knew who he was. He didn't try to lie to you. And that's that. And by the way, this hanging out the window routine. Yeah, that, that's like that's like uh, in mob lore, you know, and, and you see that in all kinds of movies and stuff where they hang a guy out the window by his ankle. So it really happened. That's how it got started. Huh? Right, right. It's not lore. It happened. <laughs> right. And at one time, Mo Levy or maybe it was another guy in the business, they, they were mad at a particular songwriter. And so they sent some hoods over to talk some sense into him because he was holding out Mm -hmm. and they hung him out the window. But guess what? Oh, no. No, they didn't drop him. Oh, okay. I thought you guys said they dropped him. No, this guy was a twin. They got the wrong guy. (laughs) (laughs) So it was an occupational hazard in the 60s for singers and songwriters. Wow. They really had their their hooks into it big time. I didn't realize it was that that deep into it. Those big, big name groups. Wow. Oh, absolutely. So uh, I'm trying to think. uh, In this music business, in the club business, uh, how did he deal with. uh, With especially like payoffs for police and and. that kind of oh. thing, uh, liquor, whatever they have in liquor control. Did he have all that wired pretty good? Oh, he did. He did. And of course, in the in the 30s and 40s and early 50s, that was just a cost of doing business. Yeah. You know, and when he was, I guess 1938 was Sonny's first arrest for assault. And he went on to have a dozen more arrests. But because there was all these payoffs, he never he never took a hit all the charges were thrown out or he was acquitted. And the same thing was true for the clubs. And in fact, that's why he told friends, that's why he moved out to Long Island in the early 1960s, because he got sick of paying bribes to all the (laughs) NYPD cops and the liquor authority and all that. And Long Island was virgin territory. So he, he went at it on Long Island and made millions, absolutely millions. Now, did he ever get into porn as, as the he did. moved into porn? He, he did. And it was a source of embarrassment to him. Uh, he did not want people to know that he was involved in porn because, you know, it's unseemly. You right. shouldn't make money off women. Yeah. 
But actually, in the in the early 1960s, when Times Square was really a, a porn haven, Sonny was walking through Times Square, and he was struck not by all the pornographic signs, but by all the men in line yeah. waiting to put their quarters into these machines where yeah. women would strip for them, or where they would put quarters into machines and look at these pornographic loops. Yeah. And so he moved in on. Uh, uh, in particular, there was a guy named Marty Hodis. He called himself the porn king of Times Square. And uh -huh. he he had been in the jukebox business yeah. and then moved into doing uh, these loops and these live sex shows. And Sonny moved in. And the way, the way these guys move in, and I'm sure you know this, you're much more knowledgeable than I, but it was so it was interesting for me to hear this, but First, he would befriend his target. Yeah. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, a few weeks later, a problem would erupt. And then his friend would have to turn to Sonny for some, for some help. And of course, right. that help costs money. Yeah. And so in the case of Marty Hodis, uh, some thugs picked up his six-year-old son on the way home from school, Ooh. and he was missing for hours. They took him to buy ice cream. They didn't yeah, hurt him. Yeah, yeah. But then they dropped him off with a note on his shirt saying, hey, how you doing, Marty? Then they tried to do the same thing with their, her, his 12-year-old daughter, but Ramola, his daughter, was a lot tougher. Ultimately, they started coming to his house, and shots were exchanged. It's unclear who shot whom. Nobody got killed, but Marty wound up turning over half his business to Sonny Francis. Wow. And that was in a note that's documented in a note. This is not apocryphal. It's, it's, yeah. and later, later, the way uh, the government would get pornographers like Marty was they didn't pay their taxes. Mm -hmm. So Marty went on trial for tax evasion. And he said, he really wasn't lying about his income because he had to give half of it to Sonny Francis. So he really wasn't lying on his taxes, but the argument didn't fly. And Marty was convicted of tax fraud. Huh? Well, that's a, that is a heck of a story. That's uh, well, that's playing hardball. I mean, I've heard of that before. I've, I've even was kind of experienced it or not, not on myself, but I saw it happen. And, and that's exactly how it works. All of a sudden you got a problem and then the mob guy comes by and says, you know, I, I can, I can help you with those guys. You know, they're hard heads. They're just young guys are kind of out yeah. of control. I can help you with them. And there's this one I got to caution. This was a guy trying to move in on a strip club owner that to get a piece of his action. And, and, and he did, he did, and he really did. So, so, uh, and, and it works, boy, but boy, grab somebody's kid. Whew, that's, uh, <laughs> that's serious business there. <laughs> now, Sonny was hardcore. There was a guy, Stel Polisi, who knew all the guys on his crew. He wrote a book called The Sinatra Club. He, was, he knew all these guys. But I talked to Sal, and he told me a story about how Sonny sold his car to a car dealership. And the car salesman said to the buyer, the guy buying the car, listen, you better get this swept for bugs because it was owned by a hood named Sonny <laughs> Francis. Well, Sonny was not happy about that. Huh. Four thugs went to the car dealership and beat the man with bats, leaving him permanently handicapped <laughs> after that day. Now, did Sonny order it or was it people who wanted to establish Impressive. their bona fides? Yeah. yeah. Who knows? Yeah. But Sal was pretty convinced that it was Sonny.
Yeah. Well, it's, you know, that's a, one thing I find fascinating about these guys. And like I said, I've known some of them personally and, and they can have these personalities, outgoing, friendly personalities, but yet you hear about some of these other actions, you know, they have families, they'll, their kids in, in Kansas city, they all went to St. Pius high school there and they're all part of a community or that community where they live. And, 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 but yet on the other hand, you've got this other kind of a life that they live when they get over to the city <laughs> and, and like, it's a whole different person. That's one thing I always found fascinating about this guy, these guys. And it sounds like he is exactly like that. Well, you're absolutely right. And an FBI agent I interviewed who listened to hours of wiretaps with Sonny, he said to me, look, there's a duality with yeah. wise guys. They, on the one hand, and he said, Sonny could be talking about, gee, you should use this kind of marble in your club. And then a minute later, talk about how to dispose of a body. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's a kind of duality that the rest of us in the civilian world don't really understand. It's yeah, it's tough. I, I think as a policeman somewhat lives like that sometimes when you were mm. over in the city, but you live out in the suburbs and you're like, you know, myself, I was like, you know, a little league coach and, you know, part of that community on one hand, but you go over in the city and I have people say, well, I can't, you know, I just can't see you being a policeman. I said, well, you never saw me at work, did you? <laughs> <laughs> I understand that duality. Mob guys, they, they go a little further with their duality. So I, I guess, Sandra, what would be like your favorite story out of your book? What, tell, tell, tell my guys what would be one of your favorite little vignettes out of your book. I think uh, actually, and this is not a funny vignette, it's not, but I, you know, I asked Sonny about all the years he spent in prison. And I, I said, do you, do you worry about what it did to your family? And that was uh, another case where he said, yes, that's, that's what I regret is what it did to my family. And do you know, his family did not know that. Hmm. I spoke to his, his, his son's after that, Michael and John, and they had never heard him ever express any regret about the life that his, he really felt a deep sadness about what the life did to his family. He never took any responsibility yeah. for choosing to be a part of that life, but he did, he did feel bad about that. So he was a very fully formed human being. Yeah. Well, interesting. All right. The book is Sonny. Oh, Sunny. <laughs> Thank you for doing that. I keep forgetting to mention the yeah, book. I know, I know. And it's on Amazon right now. Okay. It is the hardback will be out March 30th. And again, look for Sunny by SJ Petty and you'll SJ. find it. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> All right. Sorry. Well, we will get this up sometime in the next month or so, six weeks. I'm kind of like scheduling out ahead. Uh, doing the interviews, all the interviews I can for summer <laughs> so I can play more golf in the summer and do less of this. <laughs> What's your handicap? Oh, it's like 20, maybe if I'm lucky oh, oh, on a okay. good so day. you need yeah. to play more golf. <laughs> I need to, oh yeah, oh yeah. I need to play a lot more. I didn't start till I was middle-aged, so <laughs> I didn't exactly, game. I didn't exactly grow up on a golf course at a country club. <laughs> I grew up on the farm. <laughs> uh, uh. So Sandra, I really appreciate you coming on here and I will, uh, I'll put links up to the Amazon on the show notes folks. And, and they all know that. And, uh, 
Well, thank uh, you. I'll, I'll get I'll send you an email whenever I put it up with the links to the YouTube and the, and the audio podcast. And you know what? I'll send you links to my YouTube documentary. Oh, okay. Yeah, good. I'd you know, like to it might see be that. fun. And there probably yeah. are other stories. I, you know, I never, I, I never have a favorite story because yeah. I always fall in love with the next story. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's true. And Sonny was just such a multifaceted character. I, I you've met wise guys. I've yeah. met wise guys. Yeah. I'm not impressed by most of them. <laughs> yeah. Most of them are just predators and thugs. Yeah. yeah. But Sonny was the kind of guy who could pass in civilian life. Uh-huh. And that's what made him interesting. And that's why the mafia is interesting. You know, other ethnic groups haven't insinuated themselves into civilian life the way no, the no. mafia did. Right. And has and still right. does. And still does. Yeah. And, and you know, their kids become, you know, the doctors and lawyers many times. And, but yet they may have the, the one cousin that, that kind of maintains exactly. the life, too. <laughs> Even exactly. to this day is what I'm seeing. <laughs> exactly. No, the mafia has not gone away. The the FBI did a very intelligent, concerted push against the mafia in the 80s and and did a lot of damage. Oh, God. Yeah. But they haven't gone away. No, no. Yeah. When when that Rico, uh, when they started really getting sophisticated with the Title Three with the wiretaps and bugs and and could use the Rico law, it just it decimated the mafia in the 80s. Which reminds me of my favorite story. This actually is my favorite story about Sonny. And then I'll, I'll, I'll get off. In when Rico was passed, that was when the witness protection program was started. Yeah, that too. Yeah. Do you know why WITSEC was started? Um, Not if there was like a Genesis kind of moment. I I don't know that story. So the Genesis moment was Sonny Francis. Oh, really? There was a trucker on Long Island who had a very profitable business. And Sonny, as it was his want, if he saw a profitable business, he wanted to move in. So he sent some guys over to the trucker's office and said, you know, Sonny wants half your business. And the trucker laughed. He said, no, I don't need his help. The next day he finds sand in his carburetor. Yeah. And the day after that, you know, some of his trucks are damaged. And on the third day, four thugs show up in his office, beat him with baseball bats. He's in the hospital. He signed over half the business to Sonny Francais. He was so upset. He went to an IRS agent who spoke with Gerald Schur, who is the guy who really pushed for a program to protect witnesses. Mm And that became the genesis of the witness protection. Oh, really? <laughs> Years later, when Sonny's favorite son, John, wore a wire against him yeah. and later testified against him, John went into that witness protection program. <laughs> Came full circle, didn't it? <laughs> yes. that's a good, You just distilled it. You distilled it perfectly. <laughs> well, there's a certain symmetry that is it there. Yeah. <laughs> we like things that are symmetrical. they <laughs> At least I do. <laughs> All right, Sandra, this is great. Folks, make sure you get you. this book. Thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Okay. And play some golf. <laughs> yeah, really. Hey, guys, thanks for listening to this episode of Gangland Wire. Now, don't forget to like and subscribe down below if you're on YouTube. Now, I started on YouTube, as you all have noticed, I would imagine. Uh, if you're on an audio platform like the Apple Podcast app, you can give me a review there. I appreciate that. Uh, you can also support the making of each episode uh, by buying me a shot and a beer on your Venmo app. If you had Venmo, that's at Gangland Wire. Uh, I have a new way uh, 
buy me a cup of coffee. There's a link in the show notes uh, to buy me a cup of coffee or two. Uh, you can go to my website. You can see all my books and movies uh, that are for sale, or you can donate via your credit card on the PayPal button, or if you have a PayPal account. And if you donate enough, why you start getting those books and movies and uh, a, um, a coffee cup or a t-shirt or whatever you want. Uh, and remember, if you are a friend or suffering from PTSD, check out the Veterans Administration resources. Uh, just go to Google and Google PTSD and Veterans Administration or VA, and you'll find that website. And you'll find there's a hotline and, and there's links there to, to help you find uh, uh, resources to uh, deal with that problem. And remember, look out for motorcycles on the road and stay safe. Bye, folks. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.